Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient to modern times and everything in between. You can find more podcast episodes, written interviews, war games, and the most detailed military history timeline on the web at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. We're on YouTube at Warscholar1945. You can send comments and suggestions to info at warscholar.org. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Amy Rutenberg, author of Rough Draft, Cold War Military Manpower Policy, and the Origins of Vietnam-Era Draft Resistance. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks so much for having me. So first, um, how did you get into studying and writing on this subject? Um, I guess, as with most things, it was a process. Um, I've always been interested in the question of why people serve in the military, uh, what propels people into battle, uh, probably from watching war movies with my father. Um, but then I am also have always been interested in the question of gender. And so I started looking at women in the military, particularly during World War II and the Cold War. But I realized that I couldn't make any connections or, or compare anything about the recruitment of women without understanding how men ended up in the military. And of course, the answer for that was the draft. And I found that there really wasn't a whole lot written. And it, it just sparked my curiosity. So that sort of led me down the path where I ended up. So you study, so your degree is in history or? Yes, I have PhD in modern American history. And my focus is it's women and gender history. Oh, okay. All right. Is this your first book, or have you written others? This is my first book. It originated as my dissertation at the University of Maryland. Oh, okay. All right. So uh, tell me about the, uh, fo- the subject matter and focus of the book beyond you know what the title uh, provides. Sure. So I started with the question, as I perceived it, of why it became more socially acceptable for men to avoid military service during the Vietnam War. Uh, my parents are of that generation, and I grew up sort of with a vague understanding that the Vietnam War was very controversial and people didn't necessarily want to fight in it and that a lot of people were able to wiggle their way out of service in one way or another. Um, And as I started digging, what I found is that that's actually always been the case in American history. (laughs) And so I start the book in World War II uh, because that's sort of the understanding that it's the greatest generation, and everyone rushed to, to join up after Pearl Harbor, and everybody, you know, men wanted to serve. They wanted to beat the Nazis. They wanted revenge on the Japanese. They, they wanted to serve. And what I found is that, yes, it's true, by the end of the war, um, almost 80% of the male cohort born in the 1920s was in uniform. But the process of getting them there was incredibly difficult Um, It required a lot of effort and expenditure on the part of the federal government. And truthfully, when people had the opportunity to avoid service legally, they tended to take it, Um, which then makes Vietnam not all that unusual. The difference, uh, and this is what the book traces, is that the policies and procedures that were put in place by the Selective Service over the course of the Cold War just made it much easier, particularly for middle-class white men, to avoid service by the time of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And I see in the uh, the blurb about the book that, um, I guess, this comment that official th- officials thought that college-educated men 
could help the nation better by staying, you know, at home as civilians versus uh, the poorer population um, would be better off used, you know, actually doing the fighting. Yeah, um, it wasn't specifically said that way, but that's what the bulk of the book deals with. So the first chapter talks about World War II, mm -hmm. and the last chapter talks about Vietnam, and everything in the middle is those years in between. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that uh, the federal government decided to keep the draft in place uh, between World War II and Vietnam, including during times of peace, which was unusual for American history. And they did so because of the threat of the Cold War, for fear that nuclear war could erupt anywhere and that the United States would have to mobilize quickly. So they wanted to keep the force in being larger than usual. But there were also more men than were necessary, even for a larger than usual force in being. And so the question became how to decide which men to draft and which men to defer because it just didn't look good if only a very, very small percentage of eligible men were taken. So what they did was essentially make fewer men eligible by granting deferments. Mm -hmm. And the way that the deferment structure grew um, was based on expectations around Cold War defense. Uh, it was acknowledged that scientists were necessary. You know, what was going to be the next bomb? What would be the next penicillin? What would be the next you know, piece of engineering. So men who entered STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, got deferments. And of course, those men were virtually all college educated. So there was a requirement that you be able to afford college and stay in college uh, in order to be able to get the college deferment, which was put in place during the Korean War, and then keep a deferment after graduation. So those are going to be primarily middle-class men. Mm -hmm. And then there was also the structure of dependency deferments that expanded and contracted throughout this time. But um, basically the idea was that fathers were really necessary on the home front, um, particularly, and that had always been the case, but particularly in this Cold War environment where the nuclear family led by a, a male breadwinner with a stay-at-home mom and 2.5 kids in the white picket fence at home they needed the money that the male breadwinner earned to buy the things that made American consumer capitalism function and made it look good around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so that entire deferment structure was then shored up and had the unintended, I would say, consequence of favoring middle class men. And then in the early 1960s, during the Kennedy and then into the Johnson administration, uh, focus shifted to poorer men who also tended to be disproportionately men of color. Mm. The idea that military service could be used to help train these men to get skills that maybe they didn't receive in, in poor schools or, or elsewhere, job skills, literacy training skills that they could then use to become breadwinners as civilians. So poorer men ended up, and, and by poorer men, I, I poorer than the middle-class men, I should okay. say. So we're talking about primarily working-class men mm -hmm. um, could be targeted for service. Um, and actually, a, a series of programs were put in place in the early 1960s to try to identify men who didn't qualify for military service uh, through this 
through the the process of pre-induction exams, that men who failed their pre-induction exams could be targeted for social services. And when that wasn't enough, uh, the Department of Defense under Robert McNamara began Project 100,000, which was designed to bring 100,000 men per year who were previously not eligible for military service because they didn't have enough schooling, they had physical problems, something that could be fixed in the military, the theory was. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would be brought in both through enlistment, voluntary enlistment, but also through the draft, so involuntarily. I've spoken to another historian um, that said that that program was kind of a disaster, that it created more problems, well, a huge number of problems. And also they found that um, a large number of uh, Vietnam War casualties uh either injured or dead or killed were suffered by these these people you're just talking about right now yeah it was a mixed bag um it's hard to have the numbers exactly because they weren't clearly kept Hmm. what we do know is that these men who were brought in through project 100,000 overwhelmingly ended up in the infantry because they didn't qualify for other uh, MOSs, for other for other specialties. Mm-hmm. And if you ended up in the infantry, you were then overwhelmingly going to end up in Vietnam, because one of the side effects here is that the program was not created as some sort of cynically say to create cannon fodder for Vietnam, but it did coincide with mm-hmm. the growth of American involvement in Vietnam. And so... These men did overwhelmingly end up in the infantry in Vietnam, and therefore, likely, their casualty numbers were higher. Hmm. Um, And though most did succeed, uh, they weren't washed out. Um, They did wash out at higher rates. They were dishonorably discharged at higher rates. And, of course, those are are things that follow you through life. If you're dishonorably discharged, that follows you. Um, If you... Obviously, if you you die in combat, that follows you as well. So, yeah, it, it didn't work out as expected. Hmm. I also have a couple questions brought up by what you were saying before. Uh, one, sure. as far as uh, scientists remaining as civilians and not soldiers, um, obviously the you know active duty military needs some scientific minds, if not to do research, but at least to manage uh, projects. Was there any kind of tension or pushback from uh, active duty military in any way to what um, civilian federal officials, you know, DOD civilian uh, leadership uh, was trying to do in that regard. And also in the same vein, uh, bringing in the kind of, uh, you know, like this 100,000 program, did the active duty military push back against civilian leadership as far as uh, the quality of soldier being brought in? You know, were they did they did the active duty have a problem with all these deferments? Well, the question around Project One Hundred Thousand is a lot easier to answer. Yes, active duty did have a problem um, and pushed back uh, against the program. Uh, it was sort of unofficially referred to as the Moron Corps or McNamara's Morons. Uh, so it didn't last very long. Mm. Um, it was it was ended before the Vietnam War ended. Hi, I'm speaking with Dr. Amy Ruttenberg, author of Rough Draft. You can find her on Twitter at AmyJ401. If you like this podcast, please like, comment, and follow me on warscholar.org under Military History Inside Out at your favorite podcast feed, on Twitter at Warscholar, on Facebook at Warscholar, and on Instagram at 
Chris Alvarez, War Scholar. Now back to the podcast. Um, in terms of the deferment structure, it's hard to say. Uh, through the years of peace during the Cold War, so not the Korean War, not the Vietnam War, the reality is is that um, there were high the, the, there was high stringency for who who actually would qualify for service. So, in other words, the people who were getting drafted, even though they were more likely to be working class, they were absolutely educated. They had high school education, some college education. And they did their jobs uh, well. That that was not a particular problem. And because it was generally speaking a low number of people who were drafted, morale was also decent. Um, one of the things that the draft did was that it pressured people to actually enlist on their own. And that's one of the major reasons why DOD kept it in place. The idea was that if people could enlist rather than waiting for the draft to get them, they would have more control over their branch of service, more control over the uh, qualities of their enlistment and how how it affected them, what job they could do. Um, and so it, it pressured people into enlisting on their own. Mm-hmm. So morale was, was okay. Mm-hmm. Now, was, uh, so I assume the draft was just used during uh, the Korean War and v- the Vietnam War. Um, is that correct, or were there other times in this period when, when it was used? No, it was in place uh, from 1940 to 1973, almost without break. Mm-hmm. There was one brief little 18-month period in 47, 48, when nobody was drafted. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, it was in place through that whole time. Uh, draft calls, in other words, the number of men who were actually inducted, mm-hmm. fluctuated, obviously went up during Korea, went up during Vietnam, went up briefly during the Berlin crisis in 1961, um, but primarily were quite low. So relatively speaking, very few men were actually being drafted, Mm -hmm. but the military was able to use the pressure of the draft to help boost voluntary enlistments. So as far as, uh, so is the book broken down chronologically or do you address themes or the chapters um, broken into different themes about this issue? It's more or less chronological. Uh, chapter one looks at World War II. Chapter two looks at the fight for universal military training in 1945 to 51, which is an entire movement to try to create a system whereby all able-bodied men in the United States at age 18 would receive some kind of military training. And it came decently close to passing, but did not. Mm-hmm. Um, then I move on to the Cold War, which is broken into a chapter on the Korean War and then a chapter on the late 1950s. And then there is a chapter looking at those programs to, quote, rehabilitate uh, core working class men. Mm-hmm. And then the, the final chapters on Vietnam. So um, how about this idea? I, I'd like to explore more this idea of um, masculinity and, and the draft and, and enlisting and, and all that that you brought up. We have a tradition in the United States of equating military service and this ability to defend the nation as being something very masculine. Um, we see that through propaganda posters, people might be able to envision in their heads from World War II, um, John Wayne movies, uh, 
some of the recruitment ads that have run over the years, all different kinds of places. Um, and that is very true for a lot of people. Certainly, you can find all kinds of people who are veterans talk about having joined, for example, the Marines to become a man, um, help you grow up, help you mature, help you learn responsibility, as well as protect others. And that is very true. <laughs> On the other hand, um, it is a, an ideal that has also been somewhat constructed over time. There are other ways that our society has pushed uh, men to, quote, be men. Um, support a family, for example, is very much seen as a masculine responsibility. Um, and so those ideas of masculinity are sometimes in tension with one another. Um, and that's one of the things that the book talks about, where in the peacetime moments of the Cold War, breadwinner masculinity was a lot more important even as the country worried about nuclear war with, with the Soviet Union. Um, and so how, how do you strengthen the nation? How do you strengthen the nation's manhood? These are, these are longstanding questions and ones that I try to deal with in, in the book. And what I ultimately found is that by the time of the Vietnam War, for white middle-class men, and to be clear, this wasn't universal. I'm not saying all white middle class men. But in general, the, the sort of trend was that their masculinity, their citizenship, they weren't defining that by military service um, because they'd been more likely to receive deferments over the years. And so when the deferment structure started to contract and when more people started to be um, called up for the draft, they looked for ways to get out of it. It wasn't It wasn't about, I'm just going to acquiesce. This is what's expected of me. This is part of who I am. It, it really was, this is a bad war. <laughs> I don't want to fight it, mm -hmm. and I don't have to, and I'm going to find a way to avoid it. And that, you know, legally or illegally. And most for most, it was legal. Mm -hmm. uh, they found ways to, to finagle deferments. And they did, because they had um, resources to be able to do so. Resources that working class men didn't always have. Mm -hmm. Now, I've heard that, um, or I've read that protests against the Vietnam War uh, dropped off drastically once the draft went away. Is that is that accurate, or can you comment on that? Yeah, the move to change to a lottery in late 1969, and then to end the draft, uh, it was basically just allowed to expire. That did... It was an attempt by the Nixon administration to sweep the legs out from underneath the anti-war movement with the expectation and understanding that a lot of people were involved in the anti-war movement because they didn't want to get drafted. And if they no longer faced being drafted, then they would just stop agitating to end the war. And on some level, that is true. Uh, but on another level, the anti-war movement spread and became more mainstream after 1969. So, you know, and, and folks' opinions of the war continue to drop. So on one level it is true, but on another it's not. There were huge protests uh, in 1969, 1970, 1971. So it's partially true. Okay, okay. Um, now, maybe this is beyond the scope of the book, but um, I'm just wondering, uh, balancing, in, in the event of a nuclear war, do you know, you know, to some extent, having a huge military 
you know, what would be the the, the point of a, a huge draft of, of military men um, if if there's, you know, global annihilation um, threatening everyone? You know, what it, can you discuss some of the um, Department of Defense thinking on this matter, or is that you didn't touch on that? No, I did, actually. So that's part of why the press for universal military training failed. Realistically, it's a lot of resources to put into something that may not be necessary, particularly as warfare begins to change. Um, As technology changes, strategic and then tactical nuclear weapons are created, you need fewer infantrymen, never mind the fact that those infantrymen would be you know, susceptible to radiation poisoning. It doesn't make sense to put more people on the battlefield at that point. Um, But the selective service under the leadership of Louis B. Hershey, who was its director for pretty much this entire time that I'm talking about, um, he actually did see a role for the selective service, if not the draft and the military in the event of nuclear annihilation. So he talked about using the selective service essentially as the storekeeper of a manpower, of keeping track of even those men, because it was men, um, who didn't qualify for military service, but who could be used on the home front in the event of nuclear catastrophe. Uh, The way that the Selective Service functioned, it was very localized, right? Local boards kept track of local men. So the theory was that if Washington was bombed and no one at the, the head could help communities, the local selective service could step in because they knew who was there and what skills those people had um, and could actually help uh, in local spaces. Um, And that was part of the rationale of actually the creation of the one Y deferment, which is the one actually that that President Trump ended up receiving, (laughs) which is you're not quite strong enough for actual military service, but whatever the mitigating factor is, you could still be useful on the home front in an event of a national emergency. Hmm. Interesting. So were these um, selective service boards, were they federal officials or were they state officials who were supporting the, the federal program? Um, they were just local people in the community. They were appointed uh, technically by the president, although they were identified at the state level. Um, Basically, the way the Selective Service works is that it has always had a very small presence in Washington, D.C., where its uh, headquarters is, the the head is a presidential appointment. And then there are state offices, state headquarters in every state in the nation, and then thousands of local boards across the the country. Mm -hmm. And each one of those local boards consisted of citizens in the community who were appointed... um, you know, basically the way they were identified is that they were pretty much all pillars of their community, almost all veterans, um, and pretty much all men. Mm-hmm. But they were civilians, and they were not paid. It was a volunteer position. Okay. So I'm, I'm feeling some sense of confusion as far as uh, the selective service and the draft. You know, why? Yes. Why does the selective it, the selective service seems to be uh, preparatory for a draft in in a way? You know what what's the the interplay there or, or was you know when the draft existed? 
Well, thank you for asking that question. I probably should have explained that earlier. Um, so a lot of people today are familiar with the selective service because they or their sons or someone in their family has to register when they turn 18. Mm-hmm. So the selective service is in place here in the United States at the moment. The idea is that if there were a national emergency, then those records being kept by the selective service could be activated by the government to create a draft whereby people would actually be called into military service. That would require an act of Congress. So right now, Congress has authorized the selective service to exist, but we don't have conscription. We don't have a draft. No one's being involuntarily called up. Mm-hmm. And for that to happen, there'd have to be an, a, an act of Congress. Between 1940 and 1973, Men were required to register with the Selective Service, but there was an active draft at the time. Mm -hmm. And then the number of men who would actually be called month to month would would fluctuate based on the needs of the military and and what the situation actually was at at any given time. Mm -hmm. The draft and Selective Service were allowed to expire um, at the end of the Vietnam War. And between 1975 and 1980, nobody registered. Hmm. Carter, President Carter, in response to Afghanistan and rising Cold War tensions during his administration, put back in place the need to register. And so since 1980, men have been required to register, not women. The Supreme Court said they didn't have to. Um, and where that goes from now, that that is actually all very much up in the air. There was um, a report actually just issued yesterday Um by the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. Mm-hmm. And this is a commission that's been working for three years to look at, at some of these questions. Uh, it just put out its report yesterday recommending that women be required to register as well. Congress will have to act for anything to happen, but mm. it's possible. So Carter's action, was that uh, a congressional law that he signed, or was it an is it an executive order in place? No, it's a law. I, okay. I think actually that's a really good question. It's a, it's a law. I know it's a law. Okay. And also just, uh, going back to the draft, um, you know, the, the early years, I know that, um, the U S military before it under fully understood the dangers of, of nuclear, uh, fallout would test bombs near, near soldiers or, or service members, you know, just to test the effects. Were do you know if if draftees were used for that, or active duty, or was it just whoever was available? Well, once a man was drafted and and brought into the military, he was active duty. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the the soldiers who were nearby nuclear tests were active duty. Um, specifically, who they were, it's it's probable that it was a mix of voluntary enlistments and draftees, but I don't have specific information on that. Okay. And, and how would, um, how would the U S military put forth a request for draftees? Would it be by service or maybe a specific function needed more people or, or how did that play out? Do you know? Sure. 
So through most of the period that I'm looking at, between 1940 and 1973, the Army, which is the largest branch of service, was the one that most needed draftees. Um, through most of this period of time, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marines were able to meet their quotas through voluntary enlistment. Now, to some extent, it's believed that the draft pressured some of those men to voluntarily voluntarily enlist in those branches of service, but that's different. So primarily only the Army was using draftees, except during times of war. Um, and then the way that that worked is the Department of Defense and the Department of the Army would sort of look at what they thought their manpower needs would be going forward, and they would give that information to the Selective Service. And then the Selective Service headquarters would issue a quota um, that was then divided up by state. So how many men per state are we looking to induct this particular month? And then that information would be divided down to the local boards who would begin to call up men in their local communities for pre-induction exams. Uh, more men were sent for exams than they knew they would actually induct because some men would fail. Hmm. But the numbers were sort of divided out based on a, an expectation at the national level and then sent down to, to all the local boards. Were there, um, for someone who was facing the draft, were there pros and cons as far as just going ahead and enlisting uh, voluntarily versus being taken as a draftee? Yes. Uh, so until 1969, when it changed, the way that the that people were eligible for the draft was actually from the oldest available man first. So from age 26 on down, not 18 on up, which meant that men faced the threat of being drafted all the way up until age 26 and actually even older if they had taken deferments. So that meant that you have this, this cloud potentially hanging over your head for all of this time. So if you had just enlisted and got your, your service out of the way, then you could make a decision about when in your life you wanted to serve. Also, if you enlisted, um, you could choose your branch of service uh, and therefore would be potentially more likely, or I should say less likely, to end up in infantry. And so though you would enlist usually for four years and a draft you only went in for two, um, you, could, hmm. you could take back some control of your life if you enlisted. Hmm. Interesting. And um, do you have any stats as far as number of draftees who actually ended up um, staying long-term in the military or made it a career? No, I'm sorry. No, don't. no problem. I, I think now I'm just curious um, about that. Hi, I'm speaking with Dr. Amy Ruttenberg, author of Rough Draft. You can find her on Twitter at AmyJ401. If you like this podcast, please like, comment, and follow me on warscholar.org under Military History Inside Out at your favorite podcast feed, on Twitter at Warscholar, on Facebook at Warscholar, and on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar. Now back to the podcast. Okay. Are there, before, I, I want to turn towards how you, uh, to how you did the research for the book, um, but are there any other uh, secondary themes and such that we haven't touched on that you might want to mention? why folks serve, about their ideas about the military, um, about what meanings we associate with military service or with civilian service or what civilian service even means. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's a lot wrapped up in that. Okay. So do you, do you discuss those, those topics um, 
to a great degree in the book as well then? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay, okay. Um, How did you um, uh, do the research for the book? What did you depend on? So I depended a lot on um, federal records, particularly records uh, kept at the National Archives on the Selective Service uh, and the Department of the Army, as well as records at various presidential libraries. Um, I really wanted initially to be able to talk about how men individually made decisions. And I found that that's a really hard question to answer for a couple of reasons. One is that obviously people are very diverse and they have all different kinds of reasons for doing what they do. But the second is that the men I was most interested in are the ones who would be hardest to find. These are not veterans. They're not, they're not people who would be members of veterans organizations of any, on any level, because I'm most interested in the men who didn't serve. Um, and they weren't necessarily protesters. You could find the leaders of various anti-war organizations, but again, the, the people who I was most interested in, the people who legally avoided service, they weren't necessarily activists either. They were just guys living their lives who looked for a way to not have to serve in the military. So they were hard to find. Um, but so this became a, a book about, well, then how did the government make its decisions about which men to draft and which men to defer? So there's a lot of, of official records in there. I also look a lot at press records, at, at newspaper coverage, at magazine exposés, at trying to get at what's going on in communities and with individual men. Um, and that did lead me to oral histories, which I used from the Veterans History Project at um, the Library of Congress and, and elsewhere. And then I also uh, began to find records from local organizations and groups, particularly draft counselors, by the time we get to the Vietnam War. And that is another thing that's really unique to Vietnam, um, this phenomenon of draft counselors, who were people sometimes working through organizations like the American Friends Service Committee, sometimes just not working through organizations, just a group of people or individuals who just started learning about the draft law and what deferments were and how people got them and how to best maximize clients' ability to get a deferment. Mm-hmm. Um, and they advertised their services and they spoke to people and they were around in communities and they helped men get out of the draft uh, legally for mm-hmm. the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was new in the Vietnam War. Um, Hmm. And it was part of how ideas about service not really being required, not really being a part of men's identity, I think, expanded. Um, And so I found some of those records which were really interesting, and I'm continuing to look at that. I think it's it's a phenomenon. Draft counseling is a phenomenon that certainly people of my generation and younger have, I think, all but forgotten. And one one poll I saw said that up to 25% of draft-eligible men during the Vietnam War received counseling of some kind. So that's a pretty impressive number. Yeah. What's the earliest year you found that draft counseling was um, advertised or offered? 
So there were some longstanding peace organizations, um, the Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors, the Metropolitan Board for Conscientious Objectors, also the American Friends Service Committee, mm-hmm. who had small sort of counseling apparatus set up from World War II on, probably even before, um, specifically for sincere religious conscientious objectors who opposed all wars. And they helped those men receive conscientious objector deferments. Um, so there's a longstanding sort of core of draft counselors, but the phenomenon expanded and grew really significantly um, during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. As, as people who were not necessarily sincere religiously based conscientious objectors began to look for ways out. So would you say, so that would be about what, 62 or more like 65 or I'm just trying to really narrow it down. Um, things began to ramp up, I think in 65, it really was with the, the growth of draft calls and the, um, commissioning of ground troops in Vietnam that, that that began to grow as a phenomenon and it continued to expand and really hit its, its peak in 69, 70, 71, 72. Uh, so it grew significantly at that point. Yeah. I mean, this idea, this tension of, you know, people being raw, you know, raw, raw about the war, but then also like openly, and especially I'm thinking of, you know, wealthier kids and such who are openly like, eh, you know what, I think I'm going to do something else. I'm not going to join in the war and still be manly about it is just, to me, that's pretty fascinating that, that, that mental shift within the nation. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Um, and I think some of us can probably see this in our own families. I know I, remember having a conversation around a, a diner table with my grandfather who served in North Africa and Italy during World War II and my father who just decided to become a doctor and not serve in Vietnam or in the military at that point in time and just having that conversation with them around what service meant around their thoughts of the military. Mm-hmm. I think that probably is an idea that resonates in a lot of family trees. It's hmm. interesting. Um, what part of the research was most enjoyable for you? Hmm, that's a good question. I found the research on World War II actually really interesting because I was certainly raised with that grandfather who served in Italy and North Africa and thinking about, um, you know, the role of service in that particular generation's life and the greatest generation narrative. Um, and then to go in and actually have that completely overturned as I started looking at people's stories and the, the stories they told about how they tried to avoid getting drafted for as long as possible um, was really fascinating to me. In the end, by 1943, 1944, it was very hard to get a deferment, hmm. um, which is why so many men served. But that piece of the story that they all tried up until that point, hmm. or not all, but that many, 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 many tried up until that point uh was just it it sort of shifted my perspective on things a little bit Hmm. um and this might answer the next question which is uh what did you find that was most surprising in your research well definitely that was part of the answer um you know i just find the the question of service really interesting and particularly how it relates to ideas of 
citizenship and masculinity and what we what we expect of our citizens, what we want from our citizens, what we hope from our citizens, and that relationship between the rights of citizens and the right to liberty and the right to individual choice mm-hmm. and the responsibility of what it means to, to serve in a republic and to be a, a citizen of a republic. I, I think that that is a very complicated relationship. It's constantly shifting. But if you look at recruitment ads, if you look at some of the expectations of, of average Americans and of politicians, these expectations are sort of built on a bedrock that seems like it doesn't shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not really the case. Did you come across any deferment, deferment reasons that uh, seemed very surprising to you or very specific almost to the point where it looked like some group lobbied for this specific deferment. Um, not specifically, but the way that people used deferments was certainly interesting. Um, you know, you look at the National Guard. Um, reserves and National Guard were used as a draft haven from the 1950s on. It, the, the, the government itself actually created programs to try to get men into the reserves and the National Guard to get them out of the pool of eligible draftables. Because if that pool is smaller, it looks like the Selective Service is doing its job. Um, And that's how the Guard and Reserves became a haven during Vietnam um, and how football teams and, and, and people with privilege, professional athletes, children of important rich people ended up in reserves and guard and they didn't ever get activated. Hmm. What was the uh, most difficult question uh, for you to research? Maybe something that you still don't have a a good answer for in your mind, or maybe you did, you did reach a conclusion, but it just took a lot more work than the other aspects. I think getting it individual men's stories is always the hardest. Um, I am very comfortable in my conclusions and in the trends that I've uncovered, but I'm also very aware that the story that I tell does not match every man's lived experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the most interesting things that I've encountered since, since I started talking about the book in public is some of the pushback that I've received because the story doesn't match an individual man's experience and, or an individual family's experience. Mm-hmm. but also some of the confirmation that I've received because it does. Um, and so sort of acknowledging that diversity of experiences, I think is really important. And, you know, as I, as I get excited and telling the story that I have to tell about how white middle-class men got more deferments and working class men were more likely to be drafted. And that's true in the aggregate, but it's not true for everybody. And I, I think that, that remembering to acknowledge that every time I speak about this, this book is important. Mm-hmm. Now, um, do you discuss at all what uh, women felt about the issues that you talk about in the book? As best I can. Um, this is a very masculine story because only men were liable for the draft. However, those men had families. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the trends that is very clear is that during times of war, women in men's lives also work to keep those men home 
<laughs> whether that is rushing to the altar to get married, to have a, a dependency deferment before a deadline when those go away, or having a baby or quitting their jobs uh, in certain cases, um, that's very clear. Um, and it's also, it is, it is a discussion around expectation and understanding of gender in the United States, because I've read so many reports and, and, and all, all of these things talking about shortages of scientists and we're not going to have enough engineers and we need a, a, a student deferment so that we can continue having these people in the pipeline. And literally nobody talked about putting women into those positions. Mm. So it was such a grounded expectation that women were not doing these jobs and could not do these jobs and could not be tapped to do these jobs that kept this as a very masculine story. And what's really fascinating is that that's after World War II experience when women were pulled into these jobs and there were special engineering training programs for women and women were working in, in factories and, and elsewhere. And uh, it's like that experience just vanished uh, back to these expectations of a male breadwinner woman at home structure for the household. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. I also wanted to ask about, you had mentioned um, conscientious objector status. Um, do you have, so as far as I know, you can only get that deferment if you object to all war and not a specific war. Um, uh, if that's correct, can you just uh, comment on that particular deferment? I, I find that interesting. Sure. So there's been an option for conscientious objection uh, for religious reasons reasons through all American wars, uh, certainly from World War I on, although the rules and regulations around it have changed. Uh, during World War I, uh, a man had to be of a specific, from the specific historically peace churches, they had to be Quaker, they had to be brethren, they, it was a very sort of limited number of people who, who were even allowed to qualify. During World War II, that was expanded out to a, quote, sincere religious objection to all war. And then over time, that has also been expanded through court cases and activism to include men who aren't religiously opposed, but morally or ethically opposed, um, simply because the, the rulings have been that if you require religion, then that violates the First Amendment. Um, but the Supreme Court has been clear that whether it's a religious objection or a moral or ethical objection to war, it does have to be for all war. The selective conscientious objection is not recognized by anyone in the system as allowable. Um, so what that means is that in order to get the deferment, you have to be able to prove it. Um, and that, of course, is really hard. Uh, the way that it's traditionally been done is with essays and letters from pastors or other people talking about someone's pacifism in the past or, or how, how a person has grown into their objection to all war. Mm. Um, that also makes it, uh, up through the Vietnam era, to get a conscientious objector objection deferment, you had to be well-educated and well-connected. It was, it was also a, a deferment that went overwhelmingly to people who were able to write clearly and well and, mm. and have that structure in place. With, um, sort of these adjustments and changes made in deferments over the time of the draft, who were the primary movers of, of 
requesting these changes from their Congress people or, or whomever? You know, where, where were the pressures coming from? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, all over. So the laws that create selective service and then authorize a draft are generally speaking written to be very vague. And then it's left to the selective service through its director, who through most of this time was Louis B. Hershey, to put out um, regulations and suggestions to the state and local boards. Uh, But one of the things that Hershey did was that he very much wanted local boards to have autonomy to make decisions on their own. Mm. And so anything that came down from D.C., from his office, was basically treated as a suggestion rather than a requirement, Mm. which is one of the reasons why local boards could, um, could defer land-owning farmers in one place and maybe chose not to three counties over. Um, so mm. there, there wasn't a lot of consistency necessarily between them, which means that pressure came locally from local families around why their child should or should not be eligible or should or should not receive a deferment. Um, there were large lobbies that were set up. Um, universities very much wanted student deferments. Uh, professional organizations for scientists and doctors and engineers, they wanted deferments. Um, there were individuals who wrote the president, individuals and who wrote Hershey, individuals who wrote their local Congress people. Uh, so it was widespread. Everyone had an opinion about something. Well, for, for a program that seemed to be completely centrally uh, organized and imposed, um, it seems to be a very decentralized, or seems to have been a very decentralized system. Yeah, it was. And that was one of the major complaints by the time of the Vietnam War, that this is not, this is not fair, it's not equitable, it's barely functional. Um, and so there were some reforms that were put in place toward the end of the Vietnam War, the shift to a lottery, which would take a lot of the decisions out of individual boards' hands. It would Um, spread the burden, theoretically, um, a little bit more equally. Because keep in mind that uh, counties that had fewer people tended to go much more deeply into their available pool than, say, a big city like New York. Hmm. Okay. Was there anything uh, you came across that had a strong emotional impact on you, either positively or negatively? Hmm. That's a really good question. I think... Helping to understand my own family's experience, talking back to that grandfather and my dad and other people in my family, my father-in-law, who did end up serving in Vietnam in 1968, mm-hmm. but probably, you know, he, he was there, he got drafted on a fluke because someone didn't file paperwork that would have allowed him to get his deferment, um, you know, I, I really think that that's one of the, the more interesting things that um, I found is that this story s- helps people of that generation understand their own experiences in a different way. And that's been really gratifying. You know, it's interesting in, in one respect. Yeah. No, you know, people don't want to go to war and, and risk death and, and killing and all that. But in a sense, it seems as though people who end up going to war have a more grounded, um, perhaps less romantic view of war 
than the people who stayed home supporting it but never actually went. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, and you can look at certainly the number of anti-war veterans that have existed in our in our uh, history as well. Mm. And then also the fact that military service today under the all-volunteer force runs in families. And that is very clearly because the people who have connections to the military understand the realities, its benefits, its drawbacks, how it works, what it means, that in a way that, that people who have no one who serves in their family don't. Mm -hmm. What do you hope the book will do? I hope it will help people answer questions around their own experiences. I hope it will also push forward, you know, uh, this process that historians are already well into of looking into how ideas about gender influence policy, how policy influences gender. Um, in this particular case, I'm looking at, at those in relation to military service, but law is not impartial. Mm -hmm. It never has been. It never will be. And the ways that our government creates policy and law is based on our understandings in any given moment about something in particular. Mm -hmm. And they're not impartial. And I think that that's important. Hmm. Yeah. Um, did you have any difficulties getting the book published um, or finished? Well, it was a long process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I had two kids and moved a couple of times in the process. So certainly from start to finish, it takes a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an academic book. And so academic publishers exist to publish books written by historians. Mm -hmm. So getting it published was not terribly difficult. I, I think you know, I'm so excited to do a podcast and, and to push it out in ways that I can because one of the things that academic publishers can't do is really push it out to the public. And despite its really long subtitle, I do think that there is interest here um, for people who aren't in academia. Oh, definitely. I think so, too. So I know the book's already been published. Have you started another writing project or do you have a project in mind? Yes, yeah, so I am going to push this story forward in time um, and look at, I think, more individual people than policy, but that's yet to be determined. I, I'm really interested in the generations of anti-militarist activists um, from Vietnam really up until the present. And so I've begun work looking at um, some of those folks who have pushed back against military service and this process, uh, particularly around where Carter and then the Reagan administration's uh, reinstituted registration, I didn't know until relatively recently that there were people who were arrested for not registering with the Selected Service and who did jail time. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in sort of how that activism works and, and when is anti-militarist activism successful, when is it not, hmm. um, what have been the effects of it. Uh, I think there is an argument to be made that selective service as it exists in our current moment is completely ineffective, that it is a failed system from start to finish mm. uh, because no, it's not enforced. Those arrests stopped. Um, men sort of maybe do it by rote uh, when they register for a driver's license or fill out a financial aid form for federal assistance. Um, but no one gives it any thought, and it's for that reason, actually, that back in January, the Selective Service website crashed 
um, in the wake of the death of uh, Soleimani of Iran, because suddenly there was this fear that the United States was going to go to war and there was going to be a draft. And what does this mean? And it, it, folks just have no idea. So hmm. um, there's more to the story. I th- This book stops in 1973 when the draft stops. Mm-hmm. Um, but the context of today is based on an all-volunteer force and is just completely different. And so I'm I'm interested in, in moving that story chronologically forward. Hmm. Yeah, that would be interesting to read about. Um, where can people find you on the web? Uh, do you have social media or anything? I do. My Twitter handle is at AmyJ401, A-M-Y-J-A-Y-401. Um, I have a website at the university. <laughs> the hmm. book is available through all online sellers. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, I just want to thank you for doing what you're doing. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. I hope it made some sense. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, <it did. laughs> uh, and thank you so much. Oh yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title military history inside out. That includes Apple podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar, and on Twitter at warscholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. If you like to read... Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you.